Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Really good. Yeah, had a blast of a weekend. Took uh, took the kids up to uh, Horse Thief Reservoir, which is north of town, about an hour and a half, and did some ice fishing. And uh, it was, <laughs> we just had a, we had a lot of fun, man. Like the, the first one, my boy got he was reeling in. It was probably like a sixteen inch rainbow, and it just oh, came nice. like flopping out of the hole and scared the crap out of him. Like I don't know what it was, <laughs> but I think he was just expecting it to be like you know still like ten feet down there or something. All of a sudden, just went flying out of the out of the hole and. Um, Dude, it was hilarious. My wife's got it on video. Yeah, um, that's fun. And man. then, yeah, it was just good getting the family out and fresh, fresh air playing in the snow. It was a good day. Nice, man. Well, uh, listeners, if you happen to be new, this is our Monday Minute episode. So it's a shorter, more informal episode where we answer your listener questions. Steve, for the past, I think two specifically Monday Minutes. Um, that you and I have at least been on, we've uh, been answering questions specifically about K4, uh, which are the new pack systems coming out here in about a month. And today we'll answer a couple more of those, but we're mixing in some listener questions as well that are not about K4. Um, So we'll get to some of that. But um, dude, this week is March. It's almost March 1st, which is insane. What's a quick maybe update from you, Steve, on kind of where things are at with K4 for people who may be wondering just from a timing perspective. Yeah, everything's going really well. Production is just clipping along. There's this natural, just the sowers get so ingrained doing the same thing over and over for years that anytime you transition, there's just this learning curve that takes place where, you know, they're maybe 60% efficient and they're 70 and 80. And then eventually they get to where they're just cruising. And we've kind of finally hit that pace here the last few weeks where things are just really every, every Thursday I go down to the sew shop or the, they finish up the week and get everything together. And it's like, Oh yeah, nice. Like, we're getting a lot of stuff done here. Uh, so it's, everything's looking good. Production's going great. The, we're going to start being able to ship the pre-orders from the shows here, maybe not this week, but definitely some of them will start trickling out next week. It's just as we're getting, you know, we build everything in in batches down at the sew shop by part. So, you know, the one week they just make a ton of harnesses and hip belts, and the next week is bags and lids and frame uppers, accessories. And as as we get all the complete parts to build everything, you know, we have everything we need to build a pack. We'll start shipping stuff, which uh, like I said is definitely looking sometime next week. Yeah, and then we'll turn still that. Uh, you don't like me saying it. March twenty eighth <laughs> is, is the, a really good looking date for us to launch the website. The, the goal is just to have all the pre orders shipped, have a head start on building packs up from scratch, and then yeah, once we turn the website on, it'll it'll definitely be uh, drinking from a fire hose there for probably you know two to four weeks just depends on how crazy things go the day we launch certainly expect it to uh, be fairly busy but once we get all those orders shipped out then i think we'll pretty quickly return to just kind of normal i don't think our our lead times will be as fast as you know they have in the last couple years certainly but i would say that 36 to 48 hour range you place an order a pack should ship out but that's all just me taking guesses on whatever data i've got and just trying to predict what sales will be. If it goes, you know, really crazy, then we've got plans in place for how we're going to handle back order notification when things are in stock, all that stuff. Yeah. And ho- hopefully we're not in that scenario. It's not 
as we've talked about, Exos, we're super small company, seven employees. We're not built to be backordered and dealing with all the logistics of that. It's just a, a lot of extra work. So our goal is just have everything in stock, ready to go and ship out right away. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun month getting ready for that and then hang on for a wild ride for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, so then you and I the next month, the next 4 weeks here is just going to be content like we'll be this yep. week I'm going to we're going to go over to Justin's. He's got a studio set up at his shop at his house, Justin Nelson that works for us on the SNS side. Uh, we're going to start taking all the product photos of everything and then probably start shooting product videos the week after that and I imagine we'll just kind of start putting them up there as, as they make sense for guys to start looking at what pack they want to get. You know, the de- definitely all the information I would say will be available, you know, as much as we can will be available before March 28th. So when the website goes live, you should just be able to place the order and you're not doing a bunch of research trying to figure out which one you want. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, let's, um, let's dive into some listener questions. We're going to start with one um from an episode we did not too long ago is episode number 389 and we talked with kyle and that episode was titled solo hunter shattered ankle sos and helicopter rescue uh steve that's one i recorded with kyle that you Mm. weren't on um but uh yeah pretty wild story cool guy fell backcountry had to do obviously as it sounds a whole helicopter rescue and things like that we got several follow-up questions to that um, and a couple about cost and what that actually entailed for Kyle. Um, so thanks guys for asking those. And that's something that would have been great to cover in the podcast that I overlooked. So I reached out to Kyle uh, just to see what that looked like for him. And he let me know that. So in the specific county, they're basically search and rescue um like he had as as offset it was covered it's part of the the budget for that county is the way that he understands it um so he didn't have to pay anything out of pocket in terms of the helicopter rescue and then getting back kind of the search and rescue base and then he didn't take an ambulance from the helicopter to the hospital his wife had met him there um basically at the helicopter landing site and then she took him to the hospital so there was no cost of like an ambulance transfer the you know inside the hospital everything is more normal in terms of medical insurance so he did say his surgery would have cost you know 30 something thousand dollars and he basically had to pay um a thousand dollars out of pocket so long story short the rescue he didn't have any cost the helicopter none of that stuff but that doesn't mean for guys listening that that's always going to be the case right um so that's one thing that's kind of difficult to talk with um is it's it's very situational based again for him this is sounds like it was covered kind of from a local budget perspective that that that's local search and rescue operation has their own operations budget that uh didn't have to charge him anything yeah (laughs) to me if you're in that i'm sure there's there's yeah there's probably a gray area where you got like a broken arm and you're like this is absolutely miserable, but I'm not going to push the SOS button because I'm not going to die. I just got to get out of here mm-hmm. versus if you knew, yeah, if you knew the cost, I guess. But for me in my, in my mind, it'd be like, if I need to push the SOS button, the cost of it's the last thing on my mind, right? Yeah. If it's, if it's for me or for a buddy that's with me, it's, it's obviously this is a real emergency and you got to get out of there and you deal with the the cost later. Yeah. And there, um, if you're lower 48, um, there's, 
there's definitely options like, you know, I know even for Idaho and, and local Idaho guys, we've talked about this on previous podcasts. There's some kind of life flight, helicopter flight coverage. You can look at different options for what may be local to you to get a better understanding. Um, Garmin, when you sign up for your in-reach service, they have some additional insurance plans you can look at. And then if you're doing a more, um, I don't want to say remote, but you know, outside of especially the lower 48, even whether that's Alaska or international, there's also trip insurance plans that can cover um, not only the the trip insurance from a logistics of like, hey, my trip got canceled, whatever, um, but also can pair with that uh, rescue insurance. So there's definitely options to look at if you're doing something more outside of quote unquote your normal, but even for your normal, maybe look at uh, what what are some options and plans that would cover you? So, all right, let's dive into one question that came through uh, was about K four Steve and the hip belt, uh, and this was uh, a question I really liked because it's from someone who is kind of looking at the, looking at the design, seeing some things, paying attention, and had a great question. Hey guys, just got done listening to the podcast on the release of the new K4 uh, pack system. And my question is with that hip belt looking like it's a little bit wider, have you noticed any sort of restriction or kind of a pinching on the lower ribs when uh, moving side to side, kind of bending down? Um, very excited for this new pack system and hope you guys are having a good day. Awesome, Steve. So this guy notices the hip belt is wider and he's wondering if that causes any sort of like pinching limited mobility interference things like that no yeah sh- short short answer is no <laughs> the long answer is so when i set out to you know look in look at and address k3 slipping down on, on some of those you know a certain percentage of guys the one thing that just made sense in my head was like okay let's create as much surface area as possible to grab onto so that would be increasing the size of the lumbar pad increasing the size of the hip belt and then obviously as this guy's alluding to, not even alluding to, just directly addressing. But if you go too big, it, it could certainly be limiting in movement. And we did that with with the Pika prototypes that we ran, the early K4s back in 2021. I had made them even wider. And I would say, I think we had two guys complain about it. Yeah, I know Anthony. And not... And not yeah, Anthony had one. He had it more on his butt, like the you know the top of the glute there, and he so he would just he just felt at times like it was kind of pushing in there, and then one other guy was who was more skinny felt it in the front, kind of towards the ribs, and then so I just took everyone else though was like absolutely loved that hip belt, and so I just took and scaled back. I think I trimmed three eighths of an inch off the front. And then a half an inch off the back, the bottom of the back of the belt there. And then that was, uh, that's the, what we ran for the 150 prototypes for 2022. And everybody absolutely loved the belt. I didn't have a single complaint about, uh, you know, restricting movement or anything like that. It was all just very positive things to say about how the hip belt felt and performed. Perfect. All right. This question came through, Stephen. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting after we just talked about Kyle and his rescue and told that story. Uh, but this question came through basically about the line between like staying tough and staying safe. Um, and in particular, as it relates to solo hunting, but you could put this in, in several contexts. And we'll go ahead and play that listener question now. 
Hey, I just want to say I'm so thankful for y'all's podcast. It's uh, meant so much to me and helping me grow and push myself to do things that honestly, I don't think I would have done otherwise. And um, one of those things is I've actually solo hunted the last uh, two elk seasons. Uh, And this last year, I ran into a situation. um, I had found elk. I kind of figured out where they are, bugled in a bull at 40 yards on my, my fourth day of hunting. And then a storm rolls in, everything gets wet, um, and I, I start trying to, to push through again. And I uh, found myself concerned uh, because of how wet things were and how much deadfall there was. And uh, then I, I looked at the weather, and, and there was going to be another three or four more days of, of rain. And I actually cut my, my hunt short that next day. Um, my question is, how do you all make the determination, especially on a solo hunt, when maybe the conditions just aren't safe anymore. Uh, and I kind of kicked myself a little bit thinking maybe I should have stayed out longer. I knew where the elk were. Um, but at the same time being solo, uh, I kind of psyched myself out and, and worrying about, you know, if there, if I did have an accident, um, what, what might happen in the fact that there was no one there to help me. Thank y'all. I feel like we could uh, do a whole in-depth podcast on that topic, Steve, but where does your head go first? Well, yeah, get an inreach. <laughs> I mean, that's it. I, when I solo hunted prior to inreach, dude, I was like, yeah, it was, that was also collided with me being like, those some of my earlier like trips solo hunting, right? Like, so I was still learning a lot. Uh, but yeah, get an interest. I mean, that, that to me just changed absolutely everything about my mental attitude and, and, um, just, yeah, how I felt out there, how comfortable I was being out there alone. And then more on the topic, I would just say, you know, I guess for me, if it just depends on where I'm at and what I'm willing to deal with, I, I certainly, now that I've got little kids at home, I'm just more cautious. I mean, you have to see you do if you are truly in very dangerous situations, but you know, I can think of, Oh man. Yeah. Oh my, the, it's one of the scary ones was on my Frank church sheep tag and Tyler and I had to, we were actually climbing up to that to kill that sheep. And that was, uh, that was just one of those scenarios where it was, it felt like a 50, 50 probability. You're going to slip. And if you slipped, you weren't stopping, you know, uh, so very uncomfortable situation. I would have not have wanted to be in that alone. That's for sure. Um, but you just have to weigh, you know, if I'm, if I'm in Idaho and the weather's crap and it's dangerous and I just pack up and leave, if sounds like he may be, you know, traveling a long ways or something like if you were out here, we would have just rode through that storm, right? Like you're, you're here for a week. We're going to freaking hunt and make the best of it. And then, because when the hunt's over, you're going home and you don't have another opportunity. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be helpful to think through what is discomfort and what is danger. And mm-hmm. I think if you think of it in those terms, that's going to help you like process the situation um, and think through, hey, is this just discomfort? Am I, you know, he said, like he said two things in there uh, that one is now as he's looking back, he kicks himself. He said that phrase, I kick myself now. And that's obviously looking back at the situation. And then he said, in the situation, 
he psyched himself out. So, and those are two, you know, those are two different thoughts that come from different perspectives at different times. And so one thing I think is helpful is because perspective brings clarity is don't get so wrapped up in the situation, like try and step back and kind of like detach from the situation while you're in it and think through, is this discomfort or is this danger? Am I wet and cold and uncomfortable and solo and this isn't easy? Or am I wet and cold and solo and maybe there's like some real consequences here, like a real danger here. Um, So again, like in the moment, it it can be really hard to be objective. So I think that's why you have to like kind of detach a little bit, step back, like take some time, don't jump into decisions and really just think through discomfort versus danger. Like what are the consequences, the real consequences Um, and obviously a risk versus reward scenario because it it can be very easy to, as he said, like to psych yourself out and and sometimes make things a bigger deal than they actually are, right? Like that's definitely very common, especially solo, yeah. is to just like work up scenarios in your head um, and almost make it tougher, harder, more dangerous than it actually is. Um, but sometimes there are real consequences and real danger and you know, the safe call is to, to get out. And obviously that comes from experience and confidence, right? Like I was, when I thought of this question, Steve, I was even thinking of your solo outcome from this year and it was cold and snow and you had to do a water crossing. And there there was a lot of things there that other people would have perceived differently. And even you 15, 20 years ago would have probably perceived very differently. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just had, well, yeah, I'd been there before and knew I could do it again. Yeah. It just wasn't quite as cold. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, that was, uh, yeah, that was interesting when I was, when I finally got done packing that bowl across the river and how cold I truly was. That was, that was a first for me. What did you, I, I know we kind of told some of the story at some point on our podcast. I don't think it was a full podcast about that, but maybe in a Monday minute, but what did you practically do then? You get that bowl packed across the river. Yours, you know, as cold. Maybe got, as you've so ever yeah, been or I, I completely got naked, got into my puffy pants, puffy jacket, put on dry socks, and just started hiking. And it took about an hour before I could like really. It was certain like the the brain was just foggy, right? Like mm-hmm. I knew what I had to do, but it was very hard to to execute that. I was it was actually an argument for the horseshoe zipper on a. I was running. <laughs> You know, we talk about K4 stuff. I, on that hunt specifically, I was running an X-Pack, so that waterproof material on it. Then it was in a 5,000 bag and had the horseshoe zipper. And I was just so, in that moment, like, it felt like every second mattered. So the fact that I could just zip open that whole thing and instantly get to the two layers that I needed versus having to, like, take stuff out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that was that was a big deal at that certain, you know, it was only, you know, a second or two, but it felt like everything. But yeah, I just threw it all threw those two layers on and just started hiking until I could get feeling again. And then, and then was fine. And then I went and set up the tent and I was glad I did it. Cause the next morning was, you know, five degrees and I didn't want to be waking up, getting my underwear and packing a bowl across the river in five degrees. I was, I did it the night before very intentionally because my, my body heat was, was cooking. Cause I'd packed the bowl all the way down to the river and I knew I just needed to get them across before, 
um, before I, you know, that way pack my crossing in the morning. It was just packing them out from there. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's bounce, bounce back to uh, a K4 question that came through via speak pipe about the load shelf system for K4. Hey guys. Um, pretty excited to hear about the new K4 pack. I'm just curious what are the differences when it comes to accessing the load shelf from the K3 to the K4? Uh, I really love the system of the K3 and how simple it is. And I was wondering if the K4 is going to be the same. Thanks, guys. All right, Steve. So as you mentioned, we have a, a lot of content coming soon that will uh, show this very particular. But to chat through it kind of briefly... He loves the simplicity of the K3. What are the changes in terms of accessing the load shelf for K4? And then um, I guess it would be good to kind of comment on any functional differences of of the K4 as it comes to a load shelf as well. Functionally, I, don't, I wouldn't say there is any difference. It's the the system is certainly uh, at the, you know, all the different trade shows. First thing, like, oh, everyone's walking up. What's the difference? And like, well, if you step back and look at the system, it's identical. It's It's one frame. The bag detaches from the frame. You're still using the bag as your kind of meat shelf. You're sandwiching the load, forming a wedge with the bag and the frame to keep the meat up high. And it's just getting sandwiched in between the two. So that didn't change at all. The How the bag comes off is almost identical. You still have the two buckles each side that run from the frame to the bag. And then just how the bag connects at the top of the frame is the only thing that changed. And at first, you're going to look at it and kind of go, you know, like you got to like wonder it's not uh, the lid straps cover up where there's two tabs those little pockets and velcro tabs that are sewn into the top of the bag the lid straps they kind of share the same spot so they cover it up but once you realize that it's just right behind the lid strap you just simply loosen that out of the way pull the velcro tab and the bag pops right off so i, I would say in general it's easier i mean it's hard I mean, k3 is exceptionally easy this is just a tiny bit easier than than k3 yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things when in the prototyping process, I was like, when the lid strap isn't there, it's so blatantly obvious and easy. It's just an immediate like, oh, there it is. When the lid strap covers it, I had a couple of people walk into the shop that, and I hand them a hand them the system like here, figure out how to take the bag off. You know, and they kind of like, <laughs> they got to look at it for a few seconds and, and then they figure it out. But that's a real, you know, I understand as the designer, that's a real situation. A lot that a lot of guys uh, is, you know, we're all guilty of this in some regards and aspects, different aspects of our lives, but we, we just buy something. We refuse to like watch a video on it or read instructions. We just grab it. We assume we're going to know how to use it and you get out there and, you know, there's going to be some guy who doesn't, you know, doesn't mess with this pack at all, eventually kills an animal. And then it's going to be dark and he's trying to figure out how to get the bag off the frame. And that's the guy that I like when I'm designing that connection, I go, this has got to be stupid, easy to do so that you can figure this out, you know, blindfolded in the dark, um, as I like to say. Yeah. Yeah. We've been telling people who've pre-ordered at the show and uh, I'll just say this on the podcast for anyone who may order in the future. Please pay attention to when we put out content. And I don't say that from a selfish perspective of like, oh, follow our stuff, do this. But there is. And we've again been telling this guy, telling this message to guys at the show, like there's so much in these packs that you can overlook because there's a lot of, on one hand, everything's very simple and clean, but 
there's a lot of like clever intentionality and different features and functions and things that you can overlook. Um, again, easy to use, but it's like, oh, I didn't know it could do that. Or I didn't know that that was yeah. there. Or I didn't know X, Y, or Z. Um, and our whole goal is to make anyone using the pack as as formed as possible. And so there's, again, there's just gonna be a lot coming that we're just going to show more and more and more. And, um, at the end of the day, my only intention is like, you have something great in your hands. If you pick up a K4, I want to make sure you know how to use it as best as you can. Um, and again, it's not complex. It's just a matter of knowing honestly, what's there, what's built into it, the intentions behind it, things like that. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly just, there's probably, yeah, there's just, there's just some things that like you said, there's a lot of nuanced, very clever things in there that uh, I know I'll go to a show next year and someone like, I love the pack, but I wish it did this. And I'm like, it does like, you know, and just show it to them. And then they're like, ah, uh, so it's, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of little things like that, that we just have to do our best to communicate and get the message out. And if you buy the pack, please just watch the YouTube videos we're going to put out on it. You know, I'm going to try to keep more just short videos. Cause my attention spans, uh, personally it's tough if someone's like here watch this 35 minute video i'm like i don't got time for this mm-hmm. but if it's a five minute video or a two minute video then yeah i'll watch it so i'm gonna try to just do a bunch of you know there might be 20 or 30 short little videos on how to do this and that and these features toilet tips right toilet tips yeah yeah that's right <laughs> yeah or as one listener <laughs> suggested after we made that comment pack dump um pack so dump. they just packed up video <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> go back to like a um just to pull on the thread of like design intention a, a little bit more steve like go back to why the lid straps are where they are like why we kept them there even though it kind of covers that velcro tab we talked about the advantage of how the lid straps go through this hardware um because there's some very specific yeah that's we did that. well certainly the lid kind of sliding left and right on top of a pack right like if you if the pack is kind of full and you suck everything down nice and tight on a k3 the lid's going to stay there but when the pack's kind of empty because the lid straps connect about you know three inches down from the top and if everything's not snug then the, the lid has this ability to shift left and right and with this system frankly on the k4 frame i don't have because there's the top bar isn't across there, the titanium bar, I just have the two stays kind of sticking up little ears in the corner, basically. There's there's not a lot of real estate to work with. And so I had to basically put the lid straps and the bag attachment in the same area, but it, it just really worked out as one of those. I, I literally think I have this sketched on a napkin because I was, I was at a restaurant with my wife or something. And, you know, my mind never stops thinking about pack design. I'm like, oh, that's how I solved that problem. And there's just this, we did this custom metal tri-glide where the, the bag attachment, you know, it sits in this pocket and it slides through. It's really kind of hard to explain. And then the lid straps passes up right by it. Um, and that tri-glide is sewn, you know, only three quarters of an inch from the top of the pack. And that way the, it just keeps the lid straps from moving left and right and it keeps the lid cinched down tight to the top. But you still got to do your part and cinch the strap down tight. But as far as the ability to to really shift left and right off the top of it, it's just greatly reduced. And then it also keeps the the you run the lid strap up through the lid tri glide or ladder lock, sorry, and then back down through the metal tri glide. 
uh, over the front and that keeps the lids the the excess webbing of the lid strap completely out of your way so when you go back to grab the the load lifters those are um, you're not grabbing two different pieces of webbing and trying to figure out which one's which it it keeps it tucked out of the way and another thing i did there was increase the length of the webbing that the load lifter ladder lock is sewn to so it's it's like kind of closer to your shoulders so that Again, creating separation there so you don't accidentally grab the wrong one. And it also just brings it a little bit closer to your, to for you to reach up and grab onto. Subtle little thing, but uh, it's noticeable. All right. This next question was uh, kind of emailed in. And this guy wrote in and said, Hey, I'm a regular listener of the podcast and have enjoyed a lot of your recommendations on gear, training, and hunting tactics. This may be an odd question, but do you have a list of recommended books to read? I read The Comfort Crisis after you had Michael Easter on your podcast and really enjoyed it. I'm looking for more books to read or audiobooks to listen to that drive me to be better in multiple facets of life, including toughness, training, hunting in the outdoors, life perspective, and just being a better man in general. What are some recommendations you may have? So I I like that question because it got me thinking differently. It wasn't just a straight hunting question. Um, and I do read in I call it spurts where there's certain seasons where I read a lot more and others where I don't read as much. Uh, Steve, I know that you don't tend to love books too much. <laughs> going back to attention span. Um, but so anyway, to, to answer this guy, I did send him a list of, uh, books that I just thought about and was like skipping over what I call like the low hanging fruit, the obvious ones. Um, what are some different books that I've really enjoyed over the years? That may have to do with hunting in the outdoors, but may, as he said, be related to like whether that's training or toughness or mindset or what have you. So I'm just going to leave a link in the show description to 20 different books, um, which is what I sent this guy that just popped to mind. I, I, one thing I did to make this list was go back and I'll often have my books on the Kindle app on my phone um, because that makes it really easy to read them while I'm hunting or traveling or what have you. And you can go back on uh, the Kindle website basically and look at highlights you have and look at different books. So I just scrolled through like, hey, what are the books I've read that I've taken a lot of notes from um, and that I would recommend to this guy? So I'm just going to leave that list in the show description if you guys want to check them out. Again, some are hunting related, some are far from hunting related, uh, but I think would be valuable if like this guy who wrote in, you're just looking for some suggestions. So that's a random one. Um, Steve, one more on K4, and then we're going to wrap this sucker up. Hey guys, I had a question on your new K4. I noticed there's four different frame height options and I have a K3 and it has the adjustable frame height. When you, uh, pull out the extenders, you can extend the frame when you're packing out weight and then swap them back to the short end and go back to short frame just curious if the new packs are going to have that option or if the multiple frame heights to choose from is just to tailor toward people's specific needs whether it be torso height or just preference if you prefer a taller frame or a shorter frame and finally what does the k stand for uh for your k series of packs i don't know if i've ever heard that just over the years with the k2 k3 k4 thanks guys all right steve let's hit the last question first what does k stand for uh it's just short for skeleton 
Okay. So the original frame was called the skeleton because we modeled it after the frame was real narrow and just basically thought about like it was very similar to the human body, right? Like the frame was ran right up each side of your spine. And then we had these ribs coming off of it that, that formed the rest of the structure of the pack and just called it the skeleton. And it made a lot of sense with, you know, we've always been about the, the frame moving with your body and twisting and, you know, moving in the right ways and not the wrong ways. And um, so that was skeleton. And then when we came out with in 2016, when it came out with K2, it, like skeleton two just sounded too long. But then as you just, when you just say skeleton two, like K2 stands, you know, that cage is a very prominent sound in there comes out and sounds good. So that was, that was it. Not like a ton of thought into it other than it did originate from uh, the skeleton frame. And you had K2 and K3 and avoided Pika and, yeah, I was going to say heated debate on what the call came for, and for good reason. Like, I mean, certainly, you know, you and I understand that the, the name, you know, it can mean a lot. And we certainly wanted to imply that K4 was a whole new system from the ground up. And going from K2 to K3 to K4, that doesn't really imply that in the name, where it's like a lot of people assume that it's, you know, just the next generation of it when really this thing, it should more probably be named something completely different in regards to it's it is just rebuilt from the ground up and things are different and obviously we've talked about the the bags aren't you know because the buckles and the dimensions and how the bag attaches to the frame is all different things aren't compatible anymore uh, so a, a completely new name would have made sense but also at the end of the day we, we you know kind of love our heritage and love where things have come from and k4 just sounded great so frame height options as this guy said there's four different frame height options on K4, but what's different in terms of K3? And he's asking about the the built-in like reversible frame extensions and swapping stuff in the field. So the short answer is no, you can't do that on K4, but elaborate Steve on maybe why, and then also why mm, with the K4 frame design, that same quote unquote benefit of it changing the frame height in the field is kind of less relevant with the K4 frame design. Yeah, so certainly when I set out, like, you know, when I started designing, when I started designing any project, I just create a wish list. Like, here's all the things that I want. Having the frame height adjustability was definitely on that list. And I started out and I couldn't solve it right away. I was just struggling to find the answer on how I was going to design it. Like, it had to be, you know, in K3, it is brilliantly simple, right? Like, there's so many people, that's a good example of, talking about people who the features built into the pack, but unless you watched a video about it, you'd have no idea. Uh, you, you know, guys have come to us in the past on K3 and oh, I wish I could do this or that. And like, well, just make the frame taller and show them how to do it. And they're like, Oh, I had no idea. Um, but I, so I wanted to do it in a very simple manner. And I, and I focused on K4 on really just continuing to simplify the construction process so that it eliminates mistakes, right? Like uh, K3, when sewn um, properly, perfectly, you know, it was basically zero warranty issues, right? But if the sew shop gets a new sewer in there and they miss this stitch or that stitch, then all of a sudden something can fail, right? And so that's where, you know, we, ha we have these really robust QC processes in place to catch those things. But it was one of my goals on K4 to design this in a way that if somebody messes up a stitch, it's not actually like critical. Like there's so many 
things on here that there's two bar tacks here. Uh, this is double, triple stitched here. Just there's all these fail safes and catches in place in case one stitch is wrong, that that doesn't cascade into uh, an actual um, failure out in the field. Right. So along that same process of designing, uh, how am I going to make the frame, you know, adjustable in the field? I just kept struggling to find that really simple way to do it. And then I was struggling, struggling, struggling. And then finally, I just started asking everybody that I knew, like, hey, do you actually use the frame extensions? And pretty much everybody was like, no, I, like, no, like, it seemed like 99 out of 100 people didn't use it. It's a, it's a great feature. It's built into it. But in the end, we all kind of get lazy. And, and I started thinking about it, like, of, you know, all the times I was hunting with some K, with K3 packs. Um, I think I'd only ever done the extensions like once or twice, right? The At the end of the day, it's typically... You know, whenever you kill an animal, it, it seems so rare that, that you've just got all day to enjoy cutting it up, loading it in the pack, getting it packed out. It's always in a rush. It's either hot, it's dark, uh, whatever whatever the scenario is. It's just like get this thing cut up, loaded in the pack, and get it packed out as fast as possible. And even though swapping the extensions around takes a matter of you know ten seconds, maybe maybe thirty seconds, because you do have to go and adjust the your torso down to match because you just made the frame. They adjust your shoulder harness down because you just made the frame taller. But uh, at the end of the day, people weren't using it. And then I just said, you know what? Let's just, instead of having the frame extension option, like in the field on the fly, let's just offer four different frame heights that you could pick from. So basically when you leave the truck, you just know that like, all right, this is the frame height I want for this particular hunt. The reality is it's the same. Like 99% of guys are just going to have one frame height stick with it it's going to work perfect for them and there's going to be that one percent of guys who, who will own two sets of stays and you know i'm i'm personally fall into that category where you know, i'm 511 and with my torso i can run a 25 or a 26 and a half inch stay and depending on the hunt if i think at the shows when i was talking with the guys that are you know similar torso or if they fall in between this frame height and that frame height it's just like all right you know, the guys who know head clearance bothers them, no head clearance bothers them. So go with the shorter stay. Like if you, if that's something that you're just, you hate ducking under brush and having the pack catch on things or you're hunting, you know, steep country and you're looking glassing uphill a lot and your head's hitting the top of the frame and that really annoys you, then go with the shorter frame. If that doesn't bother you and your absolute priority is how the pack feels with those, you know, 70 to 120 pound loads, then go with that taller stay. But again, that's, one thing that was great about the shows is we were able to put the pack on. I, don't, I mean, how many people do you think we put a pack on? At least a thousand between the two shows. Yeah, uh, it was a pr pretty substan substantial amount of people in different body shapes and sizes. And so we were, uh, you know, making mental notes and writing notes down, and um, like, all right, this guy was this kind of height and this torso and this frame fit him, and we're certainly paying attention to that. So as we're going to build our sizing charts here in the coming weeks, everything will be tailored based off that information we gathered from from putting the pack on so many people and trying to steer you in the right direction for the frame height that's that's going to be best for you. And on a similar note, like the you know, I was trying to explain this to guys at the shows is like look, 80% of the weight is going to the hips. So the the frame height you're only talking about an extreme 20% of the weight is up there. So the, the difference between a 25 and a 26 and a half inch frame is not night and day. It's just, it's subtle, but it's there. You're going to be a good example as I did a hike, you know, I think I had 
I was about 80 pounds in the pack, did the loop at my house, the four mile loop, did it with a 25 inch frame, felt absolutely fantastic Threw 26 and a half inch frame in there the next day. And the shoulder harness went from fantastic to amazing, right? Like it just felt like there's just absolutely nothing on the shoulders versus the day before. There's like a, just a little bit of pressure there. So that's the difference, but the, the waist felt the same. And in fact, uh, like two weeks ago, I did the same hike with the women's 22 inch frame. And I was actually surprised the first time I'd hiked with that short of a frame. And yes, I had more weight on my shoulders and no, I wouldn't want to hunt all day long with that. But just to do four miles with 70, 80 pounds in the pack, that felt really, really good. So frame height is important. It's just, it's only important for 20%, right? That, that, because 80% of the weight in the frame design, everything's transferring down into the lumbar pad, into the hip belt. That's where like all the, the you know, really the vast majority of the work is taking place. Uh, that the shoulder harness, it's important, but it's not the, you know, having load lifter height helps, but it's not the end all be all that sometimes, you know, people can make it out to be. Yeah. And again, going back to all of the videos and content we have coming, we're going to be showing that, right? It's like, what does the 25 inch frame look like, say on you, for example, Steve versus the 26 and a half and be able to visually see the difference and talk about it. So again, guys, a lot more coming. Yeah. And uh, kind of going back to his question, like, so some guys will, I think I kind of said this, but just recapping some guys, you can own two sets of stays. You can swap back and forth. If you're, you know, like, you're hunting the Oregon coast stuff, super thick and brushy. Like absolutely. You're going to want a shorter frame, but then you're like, Oh man, I'm going up to Alaska on this moose hunt. Grab the, 20, the 26 and a half inch stays, right? Like you're going to be, you know, still gonna have some brushy stuff, but you're going to be packing some ridiculously heavy loads. Most likely I would, I would want the tall stays in that scenario. Uh, and then, well, it is cool about the carbon is it's really easy to, to cut off and we'll do a video on how to, you just need a little, you know, four inch grinder uh, with a, with a, metal cutoff wheel that works that's what i've been using and um you just see clamp the thing down and just you can cut you can take a 26 and a half inch frame and make it 25 and a half 25 and three quarters 26 whatever so you can kind of really dial that into whatever you want all right guys well that's a wrap for today as always uh we want to hear your questions for the future episodes whether that's about k4 or about hunting tactics things like that so you can always email podcast at exomountaingear.com to leave us an audio message like you've heard in this episode. Just look for the link in the show description that says leave a message. It takes you over to a site called SpeakPipe and you can use whatever device you're on to leave us one of those audio messages. And as always, we'll be back uh, this week on Wednesday with a full length episode. So if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive all the future episodes automatically and always for free. And we'll talk to you soon.